court, la cour. Good morning. The, the, the case of Brian David Clark and His Majesty the King. Bruce K. Campbell and Edward Sachet, Sasher for the appellant Ryan David Clark. And Aaron Barch for the respondent His Majesty the King online. Thank you. Well, Mr. Campbell. Justices, uh, I come to this case uh, a little late in the day, obviously because of some circumstances, but I think I'm, I'm in the same position you, you would be in assessing this case. And again, I think we want to start with the fact that as you read the cases, you will be uh, overwhelmed with the principle that eyewitness identification that's uh, founded on faulty but persuasive of eyewitnesses is inherently frail, and in this case, uh, more should have been done clearly uh, than what was done in this case. Uh, to start with, the judge, uh, when in a, in a situation which I think is uncommon now, presented his charge to the jury without first going over it with the with the the, the, the lawyers. In this case, uh, the trial judge asked for some input, but did not present the charge before he went to. Do you mind speaking into the mic? Speak a little louder. Thank you. Okay. I'm sorry. I thought I was speaking pretty loud, but I will. Yeah, so in, in it's the this mic. Maybe we can get it a little louder. Okay, go ahead. So in this case, the judge presented uh, the charge to the jury, then asked for comments afterwards. Now, obviously, in this first charge to the jury, he did not make what is commonly and what has become uh, in these days called a Hibbert warning. Uh, based on this court's uh, case from Hibbert, which again, if you, you look at the Hibbert case and just reading from the head, head note, it wasn't enough to just say that the eye, and, and we're dealing with an in-court, in-dock identification. The dramatic impact of the identification taking place in court before the jury can aggravate the distorted value that a jury may place on it. The instruction to the effect that such identification to be accorded little weight did not go far enough. So in this case, we didn't even have any direction on what to do with that evidence. But the, can I, let me ask you about when a Hibbert warning is required. It, the, the majority in our appeal says it's not invariably required. Yes. And the dissent suggests at least there are circumstances that it might be. Is that is that a proper reading of the dissent? And what's your view on that? Because does Hibbert require one, or is it contextual? Uh, Hibbert would require one. And uh, I don't think, and in, when the cases say it's not required in every case, uh, we, we have to talk about the fact that most cases, identity is not an issue. And so there's always an in-docking. Right. But there's a difference between uh, whether it was required in the circumstances of this case or whether it would always be required, whether it would be mandatory for any first time in doc uh, identification. And basically I would say, you will always preface the, the comments as each judge did in the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal, it's not always required, but I think it would be required more often than not in cases where identity is an issue and when there is a first time in doc in court identification. I, am, I have struggled trying to conceive of a situation where there is uh, weak, weak uh, circumstantial evidence and it's clear that the issue before the court is identity where you wouldn't give one. And, and what I mean by that is, um, first off, it's not prejudicial to the Crown. Um, it wouldn't hurt at all and it wouldn't take much time. So yes, as soon as, as soon as both of the witnesses in this case made the, and again I would suggest their evidence was rather dramatic as uh, Judge Luer pointed out, Justice Luer pointed out, uh, the Crown seems to say well we didn't really mention the in-court identification 
in our submissions, but yet waited to the end of the witness's evidence to say, now, do you see that person in court? And of course. Let, let me press you on the yeah. answer you gave to Justice Karakatsanis, because so, so would you acknowledge that it's prudent to give one, and there's some circumstances where there's going to be a, a high, a very, very strong reason to use it, but that in and of itself, the absence of, a, of such a caution, even for a first time in doc identification, is not in itself fatal. It's not in itself a bright line where an appeal court could reverse on the basis of Hibbert. Because I read Hibbert, and you'll tell me if I'm wrong, as a call to prudence yeah. um, and giving the reasons, some of the reasons that you've given, but is not striking a bright line. And so I'm just wondering where you stand on that. And I do understand that your position is that in our case, it was, it was, it was, it would, you know, the fact that it wasn't given is a big problem, but, but I'm wondering just as a general matter of law, because that's what we, of course, worry about here. And again, again, and I agree, as a general point of law, it should be given not just for prudence, but for the fact that there is identity is the issue, and there is, I think, a recognition in the jurisprudence of the dramatic effect this could have without, um, without that warning. So you're, you're, you're stating categorically, then, with first-time in-doc identifications that Hibbert mandates, mandates um, if it, a caution. If, okay, if Hibbert doesn't mandate, it should mandate, and okay, yes. Okay, but, but, but that's not the question. The, okay. quest, the question that we're asking is, does it? Does it mandate? And, and I'm again, looking at paragraph 53. And, again, of, and, uh, and I'm looking at paragraph 53 of Hibbert. What will be required to displace the jury, that, the danger that the jury will give an eyewitness identification weight that it does not deserve will vary with the facts of individual cases? So they're focused on individual cases. Yes. And that's not talking about the caution, yes. but, they're, but they're focusing on individual cases. Okay, so yes, I, I, and, I agree And I have your you. submission that it's hard to think of, of a case where, perhaps where, where it... Where it wouldn't be given, yes. Where it so, wouldn't so, be given, yes. and, and that's, that's, I think, a fair point. Um, but but is it necessary for us to go so far as to say that you always have to do it well, every time, every time? as I said, most of the cases are not identity cases. Most cases, of course, uh, deal with other issues, but there's always going to be uh, evidence from the Crown. Either they come to me beforehand and say, do I have to ask about jurisdiction and, and, and identity because they're not issues, and, and commonly we don't require them to prove it when those aren't issues. But when they are issues, as I said, uh, I don't think there is a situation where it, one shouldn't be given, and and there may be one, and as I said, I had trouble thinking of them. So does Hibbert mandate it? No, I guess I have to agree that they didn't say that. And as the, as each judge, uh, both Judge DeSleur and Justice Thal, prefaced all the remarks saying, a Hibbert warning is not always required in, situ in these situations, and I don't know. But, but, but do you still draw from Hibbert and say? Yes. And, and say by force of Hibbert, one should have been yes, given in these circumstances. And all, well, okay. Hibbert has obviously been taken by other court of appeal cases to say we now have, in our jurisprudence, the Hibbert warning, again, and, and which, which we derive from the Hibbert case, which says, of course, and again, uh, it wasn't enough in Hibbert, although they didn't. That wasn't the, the rationale for which they, they decided the case this, as it went the second time to the, to the Supreme Court. But the instruction that the identification should be accorded little weight does not go far enough to displace the danger the jury would still give to it, weight that it does not deserve. So yes, this case, based on Hibbert, demanded a warning to the jury. And, and again, I think we should also talk, or I talk about what Judge Lurie said. There should be a warning at the time that dramatic uh, gesture is made, the pointing to the only person in the prisoner's dock by the, the witness who's, who has no reason to lie, it seems to be credible, but obviously we have to alert the juries to the inherent frailties of the unreliability of that evidence and that little weight, if not no weight, and again, uh, so, so there would be a caution, I think, mid-trial, mid, mid the, 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 the judge would say, jurors, as a matter of law, I'm instructing you that that, uh, pointing out the, the in-doc identification carries little weight uh, for that matter. And then later on, uh, assessing all of the background that we, t we talk about in these cases, such as the, 
They couldn't figure out who it was at first. There was a bootstrapping. He, she said, he said the name Ryan. He couldn't remember saying that name. We also have all the other concerns Justice Lure talked about where they started assuming, what did Ryan do? And again, we, we didn't even know the name before the, the prosecutor and the um, witness, in this case, Mr. Williams, started referring to the, the person, the other person as Ryan. And then what did Ryan do? And then what did Ryan do? And that led to a danger. So, uh, Mr. Campbell, in this case, the Crown is uh, saying in its factum Paragraph 57, for instance, that the eyewitness identification evidence was corroborated by circumstantial evidence uh, proving that your client had a motive uh, and the opportunity to commit the crime. Well, uh, and they are referring also to um, more circumstantial evidence to try to uh, corroborate the eyewitness uh, identification. Yeah, and, and as, as pointed out in the factums in the Justice Lures, there's, there's significant problems with that circumstantial evidence, and even the trial judge recognized that. Uh, for instance, there wasn't just the, the points you mentioned, uh, Justice. There was uh, obviously evidence of motive, that he seemed to be upset about his, his wife. Uh, opportunity. Now, I don't know if we, we did assess the opportunity. I know the, the uh, wife was... Uh, what we would refer to as Section 9-2'd on that, and I don't know if she, I couldn't tell from the traps I read if she had actually adopted her, her, her statement from the police or was just cross-examined on it because then there would have to have been a warning that, that the use of that statement can only go to credibility and not to the facts that she stated. And, I, and again, the, 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 I don't have that material before me. So we had only, I, as far as I can see, for sure or motive, which again is, is not significant when weighed against the other things. The other type of evidence I think has been dealt with quite, not, quite well in both the dissent uh, by Justice Lure and in the, 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 the facts that they didn't really amount to a compelling circumstantial case. The DNA, no temporal connection whatsoever. And of course we have evidence that the, the deceased and the accused were friends. Obviously that's how they, they were seen on Facebook together so it wasn't a surprise. Uh, other than that, um, what about, what about putting the direction or the misdirect, uh, supposed misdirection in context? The Crown here arguing that the, the defense counsel's conclusion state, this warning that the defense counsel gave in its conclusion would have done the work here. And that the, that's the trial judge's call to, to, to sort of take the pulse of the situation much better placed than than we are, and we uh, weren't I, there. What, 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 what do you make of that argument? Well, I, I don't think much of it. I disagree with it that, that um, the judge or, or, or us or, or the Court of Appeal would be in a better position to, to do that or not do that. And um, in this case, he chose not to do it. And, and the problem with that is he didn't give reasons for not doing it. And the reason he later gave when he was asked to bring the jury back, and again, what I was getting when I started is that uh, I think most trial judges will always have a great reluctance to recall the jury and say, I forgot, I did something wrong. And that's what I, I find troubling about uh, this case. In a sense, he didn't do it in the first place. And then when it was brought to his attention, his rationale for not doing it is troubling, to say the least. Basically, he is saying to the, the person who was hired or appointed to represent the interests of this person that I know better than you. And I am saying to you that it will only be to your detriment, which obviously did not work out in, in that sense. But, uh, and, and I disagree with that sentiment entirely, that bringing back the jury and saying, you saw two witnesses confidently point the person out. I want to tell you as a matter of law that you should give little or no weight to that evidence as it comes to identity. <clears throat> and so that's where, where I say that the, that it's wrong to say the judge is in a better position, and the same with the Court of Appeal. Uh, majority said that in Saskatchewan, that we are not dissuaded that that is wrong. And I say to you, I am submitting to you that it is very wrong to simply say that the trial judge can override the advocate's request to do something to the benefit of his own client and declining to do it on the basis that I know better. Again, it's equivocal in the sense of whether he would be in a better position, but certainly uh, uh, telling the jury that there should be a Hibbert warning 
is something that he should have done and could have easily been done. Now, uh, and I'd like to, to refer to, because if you, if you look at Judge Thal's decision, his first part of the decision deals with, oh, we feel everything was done, perhaps not perfectly. May I just ask a, a follow-up on, on yeah. that particular? Um, the, the trial judge was of the view that it would work to the detriment uh -huh. of the accused. Can you explain what that rationale might be uh, in terms of what the detriment could be? The, I can't in the, in the one sense, but I think the trial judge was saying I would be reinforcing their, their, their in-court identification by bringing it to the attention to the jury again. And so, and, and what had happened here is he charged the jury, made no reference, then was asked to recharge the jury. He obviously, in my view, should have charged the jury with a Hibbert warning, probably mid-trial mid and, and, and secondly, and then when asked to do it, there should have been no reason. And I, I would point out, I'm sure, uh, I don't think in reading from the Crown, they would have objected. This would have probably been done, I mean, not, I'm not saying with consent, but they were not objecting to the defense request to do a Hibbert warning. It was the judge's reluctance to recharge the jury based on his assessment that it would be to your client's detriment. And to me as a defense lawyer, that was troubling for, for a judge to say that, to, uh, to assume I don't know as, as much as I think I do. And I'm not saying I'm always right, but again, I am the advocate, or in this case, that, I, that is representing the person. And, and as I, I said- I take it from your, sorry, counsel. You know, uh, no, it's fine. I take it from your comment that you made earlier that it is now common practice in Saskatchewan for a trial judge to um, ask counsel to review the jury charge before it's yes, delivered. Yes, and I, I, this was um, this last week. I had finished a jury trial, and again, uh, the judge made pains to explain that he was working all night to present us with his written charge that we'd like to review before the jury came back, and that has been the practice. And it obviously wasn't done in this case, which which would have could have solved some things. I don't know if the judge would have still said. Uh, I'm not going to give a Hibbert warning because, and, and I think their reasoning is, I'm trying to think of the right word, fallacious, to, to say that uh, I know better than you, uh, this warning which is for the protection of the accused shouldn't be given in this case because it wouldn't work to, your, to his advantage. And again, that, I think that's wrong. To, to, it would have been I can, appropriate for them to say, I'm but sure How this will. could be. A disadvantage to the accused. <laughs> okay. But in fairness to the trial judge, uh, often on appeal, defense counsel will come forward and say, well, the, trial the defense counsel made a mistake and the trial judge wasn't bound by it, so the, we don't want trial, judge, trial judges unreflectively counting on defense counsels. No. no. I, so I, that's I, just in defense of the... I, I, yes, and I, I'm, I mean, I know Judge Mills is a very um, respected jurist, but at the same time, this is not a minor point, and I'd like to think that, no, I wouldn't uh, be the kind of um, advocate who would say, oh, I made a mistake now that it didn't work to my advantage, and, and, and obviously any court of appeal and, and this court would certainly point out that I can't have my cake and eat it too. I can't have it both ways. So, yes. Yeah, but clearly the point is that it's not that the defense requested something that they didn't get that's the reviewable error. It's what they requested in yes. light of the circumstances yes. of the of, case. Of course, yes. Right. So, yeah, yes. And, again, and then these are, that's just one of the factors. Now, now the thing that's, um, there's a few things when I was reading the, the majority decision. As I said, Justice Thal, um, in the first used about five pages to basically say the judge, or the, the, the judge covered the evidence of uh, frailty enough that we're, we're confident that, that, that no Hibbert warning was made. Um, and again, so you can read that. Then he goes on to the other issue, raises uh, the other uh, appeals, other, um, sorry, the other grounds of appeal that were raised. And then um, dealing with that, that's when he comes back to, of course, it was raised that this was an unreasonable verdict. And then the, he summarized the Crown's position. And then on page 19 of his decision, he goes over reasons why that the circumstantial evidence was incredibly suspect. Uh, 
as I said, Mr. Clark argues that the eyewitness identification was so fraught with problems, so re no reasonably instructed jury could convict him. And again, he agrees, and this is, this is um, uh, important. I agree that the eyewitness evidence was weak as compared to the average case. Mr. Williams' evidence was disjointed, difficult to follow. On the other hand, Ms. Hogan's testimony was more, co more, <coughs> more coherent. There are numerous concerning aspects with regard to Mr. Williams and Mr. Holmgren's ability to observe, remember. This included seeing a previously unknown person. Now I could go on, but then he gets to this. Despite these frailties, the Facebook identification and subsequent in-court identification but two witnesses remained evidence of identity the jury was entitled to consider. So in dealing with the issue of unreasonable verdict, he says that they had the in-court identification they were, they were entitled to consider as part of the case, and that's true but it seems to be uh, wrong when he didn't follow up, or when the trial judge didn't follow up with the Hibbert warning. So in, in one case, the Court of Appeals says that the, the, they certainly were entitled to look at the, the in-court identification as part of the overall case, but it was done without the Hibbert warning. And then, as they said, and upon it, it could place some weight, whereas in Hibbert, the, 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 the direction would be, or the direction of it having little weight was not, did not go far enough. So, but, but if we look at the actual charge to the jury, I, I mean, there, there is, um, I guess, clear directions about the frailties of eyewitness. There was. Um, generally. Yes. And um, <coughs> so had there not been an eye, uh, uh, an in-doc identification, this p p would have been sufficient. Um, and. Oh, you're saying no. Okay. I'm, not, I'm not sure. I, okay. I mean, again, again uh, would this have been sufficient? First off, they, they do need somebody to, to, to tell us that that's the person they're referring to in all of this evidence. And usually that's done with an in-doc identification. I think Hibbert talks about why we have a necessity for it. We can't do away with it. And that's why there has to be a warning. And uh, so in this case, yes, the, the, the judge did, did in a general way give give the jury tools to equip with eye, eyewitness identification, but the context of this case required more given... Okay, now just let me press you here for a bit. Did the context of this case require a specific Ebert warning on the um, in-doc identification, or would it have been sufficient to give this general warning if, if the trial judge had tied it to the various places in which these two witnesses made eyewitness identification, i.e., whether it's the Facebook, um, you know, only and, the Facebook, and and um, in terms of uh, and then articulated the facts here and said it includes. Again, the the only, I think the only eyewitness evidence would have been the Facebook that she said that she found a picture in Facebook. I assumed it was put in as evidence that she said that's the person I saw. Other than that, there was no eyewitness. There was no photo lineups. There was no um, um, presenting uh, the, the accused in any fashion through a lineup or, or you know, just bring them to the house saying, do, do you recognize anybody? So uh, again, it may have been enough, but that's not the case we have here. We have a dramatic in-court identification by two people and as Judge Luer pointed out, uh, it's a little disingenuous of the Crown to say we didn't really rely on it, yet that was the last thing that the Crown's, that was the last piece of evidence the Crown presented. Look around, you look around, witness, do you see that person in court? They pointed to him. And so, so and as I said, in uh, Judge Thal's decision regarding the uh, uh, unreasonable verdict, he basically uses the in-court identification to bolster that argument. And again, I think that's a little wrong when he didn't also tell him that, and I think Hibbert would require him to say that evidence is of little weight, and yet he says, the two witnesses remained evidence of identity the jury was entitled to consider upon which it could place some weight. And again, if they're going to say that, they should also have said that as a matter of law, you should place little weight on it, and even perhaps more than that, as in this case. <clears throat> uh, 
So again, we have uh, obviously put forward a number of cases of a similar result we have talked about. I think there's cases of uh, uh, by Lord or Justice um, bringing up the point about the jury or the the defense. I think the, or I think the crown argument. No, I'll deal with one of the crown arguments that somehow the defense submissions can fill gaps in the um, charge to the jury and pointed out that, that certainly, uh, and I think Judge Luer again, dealt with this issue. Uh, I think he cited the Phillips case and not only pointed out that in spite of the fact that uh, the jury was told I might have recharged you or I could recharge you, he didn't. So we end up with not knowing what the jury would have done with that in-court identification. Yes, they were told there were frailties of it, but there is no direction as to what to do with the confidence of a witness who makes such a dramatic in-court identification, and that's why these cases that we've cited that have uh, interpreted uh, Hibbert and, again, developed a jurisprudence that leads us to having a Hibbert warning wasn't done here. And so, in that case, the, the, the only, um, again, and. Also, I'd like you to uh, look at the, uh, judge, uh, the decision Judge Jackson made in Big Sky where she, she outlined all of the cases, the three types of cases that have come before appellate courts, and this one clearly falls within the second category of cases where they're sent back for trial because of their lack of direction being given. <clears throat> Again, and, and I don't know if I want to go, you, you want to hear me on, the, on how, how weak the evidence was, the, the, in this case, and why, again, as we talked about whether a Hibbert warning is always required, uh, and I said, basically, when you look at this case, they didn't have a long time. They weren't paying attention to him. They were engaged in their, their own discussion and their own marital difficulties. Uh, it was dark. So for all of those reasons, uh, even if this court wasn't going to say, you know, whether there should be a mandated Hibbert warning, I think we can clearly say that there should have been one in this case, I think at the very least. So um, unless there are any other questions, Justices, I have. Thank you very much. Thank you. Ms. Bart. Thank you. Good morning, Justices. In the Crown submission, the important question to ask at this point is what precise instructions were needed that were not given in this case? The dissenting judge provided three explicit instructions, and it appears from my friend's submissions this morning that he is relying on these, um, uh, the dissenting judge's articulation of the instructions, and they are summarized at paragraph 170 of the judgment. First, the jury should have been cautioned that Mr. Williams' testimony had limited value for the purpose of identifying the assailant. Second, that Mr. Williams' in-court identification had no evidentiary value at all. And third, that it would be dangerous to attribute to Ms. Holmgren's in-court identification any degree of certainty greater than what she had told the police at the time of the offense, which was that she was 90% sure. Although the dissenting judge purported to rely on the Hibbert decision to find the trial judge should have given these particular instructions, his reliance on Hibbert was misplaced. In our view, the true Hibbert instruction that arises from that decision is that there is a very weak link between the confidence of a witness and the accuracy of the in-court identification. That is the instruction on in-court identification that was not given to the jury in Hibbert and that is the same instruction that was missing from uh, the cases of Jack and Richards as well, that the dissenting judge relied on. But the judge in this case explicitly gave the jury that instruction, telling them uh, not only that there is little connection between the great confidence of a witness and the accuracy of the identification, but he also told the jury, even a very confident witness may be honestly mistaken and a very confident witness may be entirely wrong with respect to his or her identification evidence. 
So that leaves um, the question in Hibbert of the comment on what weight should be ascribed to the in-court identification evidence. Right, but he does, the trial judge does go on though after making certain questions uh, about the testimony to draw the level of confidence as between Mr. Williams and Ms. Holgren to the attention of the jury, right? And he speaks about, I would, I would, it would appear you could safely say that Mr. Williams was not as confident in his identification of Mr. Clark as was Ms. Holgram at the time of the trial. So uh, what do we do with that specific? He, he's, he's, it seems that he's allowing them a license to deal with confidence in connection with the identification rather than undermining it, which is I think what you we're trying to show from pointing out those three uh, statements. Thank you, Justice Martin. Um, in our submission, the while the great confidence in um, the witness's great confidence has no correlation with the accuracy of the identification, a witness's reservations or hesitation can can speak to a lack of reliability. And so it was proper for the trial judge to point out in that context, he was making the point that Mr. Williams was not very confident. And so it was entirely proper for the jury to take that into account in weighing his evidence. Um, I would submit that in the, uh, when the charge is considered as a whole, there's no, um, no aspect of the charge, including that portion that Mis would have misled the jury into believing that it could accept the, uh, that it should um, scrutinize the reliability of the in-court identification evidence based on witness confidence as a positive indicator of reliability. But the, the comment that he wasn't very confident was in comparison to the, the identification evidence of Ms. Olstom, who was confident. I guess I'm having some difficulty following your argument that in fact there was a Hibbert type instruction in this jury charge. Certainly when defense counsel raised it with, with uh, the trial judge after the fact, no one, not the trial judge, not Crown, no one seemed to take the position that it was already in there. Rather it was that in fact, the Crown hadn't relied on the in-court identification, that it had been raised by defense in closing, that the instructions were adequate, and that somehow the, it, it would be prejudicial. So I'm having a bit of difficulty following your argument that in fact there is a Hibbert-type instruction in the jury charge. If that's okay, a fair characterization. I Sure, and in response to that, Justice Kirksanis, I think it's important for us to um, to remind ourselves of what precisely defense counsel's objection was. So, um, defense uh, defense counsel at trial offered two comments after hearing the jury charge about the identification instructions. First, he uh, said the jury should have been told that the in-court identification evidence deserved little weight because um, it could not derive probative value from other identification evidence at trial. And he asked the trial judge to clarify to the jury that Ms. Holmgren's identification might have been mistaken, even if it was not dishonest. And he pointed out that in his view, her, um, he focused on Ms. Holmgren because her in-court identification was particularly emphatic. Um, the, and, and then I just want to address too, the, um, in addition to Justice Kezier's uh, point this morning, the judge's exchange with the defense counsel, I submit needs to be read in the context of the fact that this was a real time conversation um, and a short exchange. So it appears the judge is thinking out loud a bit by reflecting on whether a further instruction would um, potentially backfire on the defense and then he concludes his decision not to recall the jury to provide further instruction um, by making the point that he has already laid out at quite some length the problems with the eyewitness identification evidence for the jury he's already instructed the jury explicitly that um, that uh, the eyewitnesses may be mistaken about um, 
the identification of the appellant and that they need to scrutinize the reliability factors bearing on um, their identification. And so that, in our view, is, is really why he declined to provide further instructions, because he would just be repeating himself. Um, well, but but let's talk about those, those instructions. I, as I said before, I think that they're a fairly good general statement of some of the frailties of eyewitness evidence. But you have to look at the circumstances of every case. Hebert tells us certain cases call for more than a general statement and require a specific um, tailoring to the evidence. And when I look at this evidence, um, this is a first time in dock identification. That's one of the factors. We have multiple in dock identifications, i.e. two people doing the same thing. And we have a case that the success of the Crown's case was dependent on eyewitness evidence. And the other eyewitness evidence that is um, uh, both in terms of description and identification um, is problematic, even weak. Uh, I've <laughs> and, and so in, in this kind of a, a constellation of circumstances, um, isn't that exactly what Ebert tells us is required, is something specific to draw attention to uh, the, the, the in-dock identification because there's these other issues as well? Thank you, Justice Martin. So I would point out and, and um, also um, touching back on Justice Kirkusanis' question, I believe that the, um, the jury charge when the judge addressed Ms. Holmgren's identification evidence, he pointed out the specific uh, frailties in her evidence and then closed that off by saying, uh, with this evidence in mind, you must assess the reliability of the eyewitness identification very carefully as it appears to be problematic. So in our submission, he, he expressly called um, the evidence problematic right after he talked about Ms. Holmgren's. And then, um, so the fact that he then compared, um, stated that Mr. Williams' identification was comparatively less confident than hers in our submission would not have given the jury a general sense that, um, that they could take Ms. Holmgren's confidence as a strong indicator of reliability. But from start to finish in this case, the Crown's position has always been um, that it is the combination of the eyewitness identification evidence, which has different facets. Um, it's important and what distinguishes this case from other classic eyewitness identification cases is that Ms. Holmgren was the person who led the police to the appellant and then their further investigation of him uncovered a substantial body of circumstantial evidence connecting him. Not just tending to prove identity um, in, this, in the sense the uh, circumstantial evidence in Hibbert um, well, I can see why you draw. So I can see why you draw our attention. I can see why you draw our attention, Ms. Barch, to the circumstantial evidence. Because I, I just want to pull back to the the considerations applying to this particular eyewitness identification evidence, right? Um, and, and and I mean, some of them, certainly not all of them, are listed in Mr. Clark's factum, but but but. Most of the important ones, including that both, both Mr. Williams and Ms. Holmgren were using meth on the date in question. Um, Mr. Williams was, in addition to supposedly seeing Mr. Clark, he was seeing a lot of smaller people, right? Little people. He thought he was in the Lord of the Rings or something. He admitted he hallucinated while using drugs. Ms. Holmgren says, yep, he appeared to be hallucinating that night. They each had almost risible difficulties identifying the offender. She does her, quote, research, close quote, on Facebook. Um, and, and I mean, aside from all of the things listed in, in Mr. Clark's factum, I would add there's no evidence that Mr. Williams ever made a visual identification of Mr. Clark as the assailant, none. 
and Ms. Holmgren's level of certainty with respect to the identity markedly increased from the time of her initial equivocal identification to her confident identification at trial. Why are you even resisting a new trial in this case? I can't imagine a frailer identification case that's ever come before me. This is ridiculous. Thank you, Justice Brown. Well, and as um, has been pointed out earlier, um, and I, it is not controversial in the law, the, the adequacy of jury instructions has to depend on the individual factors of the case and the specific And I just, I just listed case. a bunch. That, that relates to frailties, but the law, as in the cases that we cite in tab two of our condensed book, is clear in all of the eyewitness identification cases, the, the law is clear that if there is other evidence capable of supporting the accuracy of the identification, that matters. That comes into account in terms of how far the the is, is this your is go. this your is this your misguided citation to Ritzma that you're talking about? Ritzma and in Davenport. I so so in, I mean you you, you rely heavily on on Rietzma, right? You say, well, the circumstantial evidence capable of confirming the accuracy of eyewitness identification may increase the probative value of in-court identification, and you rely upon Rietzma for that proposition. Rietzma does not say that. Rietzma held that a conviction was unreasonable because it was based on the trial judge having reasoned that the eyewitness's honesty and fairness supported the reliability of the in-court identification, an identification that was unsupported by any circumstantial evidence. That's not the same thing as holding that in-court identification itself acquires increased probative value if there is confirmatory evidence. It just says, and this seems to be fairly obvious, that confirmatory evidence of identity would have strengthened the Crown's case such that it might have rendered the verdict reasonable. That is a different issue at all entirely from the adequacy of jury instructions. That, that citation to Rietzma really doesn't help you at all. Fair point, Justice Brown. Um, I, would, I would respond, though, by going back to the fundamental principles of criminal law that the, um, all of the evidence on identification had to be considered in its totality by the jury in deciding whether the Crown had discharged its burden of proof. Ms. So, Barch, um, I, I, if I may. Um, yes. And I, I think you, you've cited that principle correctly. But in this particular case, we have the trial judges, as the trial judge explained to the jury, the case against Mr. Clark depended almost entirely on eyewitness testimony. Um, and that was the trial judge's assessment. And I think that's our starting point here. And I think we would all agree that there was, um, there were significant instructions given on the dangers associated with eyewitness identification. And the, but the issue before us is whether the in-court, in-doc identification in the circumstances of this case required a further Hibbert-type instruction. So I think it would be helpful if you kind of focused on that. Thank you, Justice Gerkatsanis. Um, so, well, in our submission, the it would have been an error of law in this case, given the circumstantial evidence for the trial judge to instruct the jury as the dissenting judge stated. Um, and and even in, I would point the court to um, the tax. So not only was it necessary, it would have been erroneous. Yes. Wow. Because in, even in TAT, for example, the dissenting judge quotes from the Ontario Court of Appeal, they, they specifically state it is the in-court identification of the accused which has little or no probative value standing alone. That is the universal principle in all the case law um, that in-court identification can be very unreliable standing alone, obviously because of the suggestive circumstances in the courtroom setup. Um, and especially when it's the first time the witness has ever identified the accused. But, but 
I, I submit that that principle stands in all of the eyewitness identification cases and the reason that in uh, the cases where there is no circumstantial evidence tying the accused to the crime scene, for example, or other evidence of motive or opportunity bearing on the essential element of identity, that is why um, the dangers are are heightened in terms of the frailties of identification evidence and um, it is that presence or absence of circumstantial evidence supporting the accuracy of the identification that has to inform the, the trial judge's discretion in what exactly to tell the jury. But, um, it, but if in terms of what exactly to tell the jury, I mean, I'm looking at the Ebear case itself. Um, and Ebear, you know, 2002, uh, a while ago, but still very strong law. Paragraph 50, you have the court t talking about that there should have been um, a, a, a stronger caution, um, even in a case where um, it was spoken of that the eyewitness identification um, uh, should be accorded little weight um, and, and that it was highly problematic. So how does what you're, you're arguing about this fit in with paragraph 50 of the Ebert decision? Sure, so thank you, Justice Martin. So um, in that case, we submit that the, the dissenting judge lost sight of and the majority of the Court of Appeal appreciated that in Hebert, the court unanimously concluded that the the fact that the judge could have given more forceful warnings about the weight of the evidence did not amount to reversible legal error. Was somebody, seeing, was somebody seeing little people in that case too? Well, every, every criminal case, as we all appreciate, is different. Um, but in Hebert, although the, well, I mean, in Hebert, the eyewitnesses had very fleeting suboptimal and stressful um, opportunities to observe this man that they had never met before. Um, so comparatively weak, just as, as the um, eyewitness identifications alone, standing alone, were in this case. Um, and the Supreme Court in Hebert pointed out that there was no physical evidence linking the accused to the murder scene, which is or the uh, crime scene, which is much different in this case. In this case, um, I, I would submit that the descending judge lost sight of the, uh, the circumstantial strength of not just the fact that his DNA was found at the crime scene, because of course there was evidence that he had, you know, he's friends with the victim and he'd been to his place before, um, but that his DNA is found on, on the only water bottle that's nestled among items that fell from the victim's mouth and body during an obvious struggle, laying in the bloodied grass, um, and his DNA is on it. And the eyewitnesses, of course, have no um, ability to know that that, that DNA was deposited. Um, and so I, I would submit that that evidence alone was a very strong confirmatory evidence or, or capable of in, um, being accepted by the jury as strong confirmatory evidence of identification that could lessen the dangers um, inherent in the eyewitnesses' identifications taken alone. Is there, is there just, you, you've been helpful in comparing um, Hibbert or Hibert, I don't know how you pronounce it, with, with the present case, but are, are they on all fours in the sense, you'll correct me if I've got it wrong, but in Hibbert the charge did caution that in-court identification should be assigned little weight, and for the court it was not so deficient as to amount to an error of law. But Justice Arbour, for the majority, did she, she didn't need to deal with whether the failure to give any instruction on in-court identifications would have been an error. Is, is that, surely that bears on how we think about Hibbert for this case. Yes. It, it, it's um, definitely the charge is different than in this case because in, in Hibbert there was that um, uh, minimal instruction on in general in-court identification attracts little weight. 
Um, but I would also point out that in that case, the Supreme Court ordered a new trial, despite that there was some circumstantial evidence um, relevant to the issue of identity, but it was also explained under oath by the accused um, who provided innocent explanations for all of those pieces of, of um, identification evidence. And also notably, the woman who was attacked testified herself that um, the particular details, the personal details that matched that the Crown called evidence to show that those details um, matched Hibbert's situation, but then the victim herself said that she believed that she might have met another man who also told her all of those same details. So she herself introduced um, the prospect of this other suspect who may have been the man who attacked her. Um, but the point is, I guess that's the, the question here, is um, trial courts seem to be interpreting Hibbert as um, imposing uh, or mandating a specific, particularly worded caution in every uh, jury trial that involves eyewitness identification evidence. And that we would submit is a misinterpretation of the decision. It contradicts all of the other jurisprudence of this court in terms of- But you've heard your, col um, your colleague uh, for the appellant has, has not urged upon us that we have to draw a bright line rule. His argument turns on the, the facts of this case and whether here the charge to the jury functionally equipped the jury to cope with the particular risk associated with in-court identification in these circumstances, as my colleagues have pointed out. So, so if that's any comfort to you, would you agree that this case can be decided on the circumstances here without drawing bright lines that you warn us against? Yes, I do agree, but I uh, would submit that it seems that the, um, the appellant's position is premised on a default position that in most cases, this particular, particular caution about um, the lack of reliability of in-court identification it should be the starting point, and that seems to be what the dissenting judge, how he is reasoning, and that's not what the law says. The, the question on appellate review is, what is the general sense from the charge as a whole and what it would have uh, given to the jury? And I would also point out that um, the defense uh, closing address does, does matter. The defense specifically pointed out to the jury um, in its comment on the evidence that uh, in-court identification can be very suggestive and for that reason is highly unreliable. Um, the judge specifically told the jury to consider counsel's comments on the evidence, which would include that statement. The judge did not override or contradict anything the defense counsel said. And with, 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 in our submission, he reinforced all of defense counsel's concerns in terms of the potential frailties of eyewitness identification evidence. Um, you think of, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but it, just no, on, on that very point, what do you think of the dissenting judge's comments on the judge's silence in respect um, of, of uh, the, this, this point? And that, uh, to quote paragraph 162, the judge's silence in this respect might well have led jurors to think that Mr. Clark's counsel misspoke on the law when he made such statements as identifications from the box um, to the box, sick isn't identification. What, what do you make of, of the dissent's comments there? I would submit that's highly speculative and unfounded. Um, and it's, it's undermined by the whole flavor of the jury charge when it's taken as a whole. The ju trial judge reinforced <laughs> the defense counsel's submissions that um, identification evidence like this requires very careful and close evaluation um, by looking past how the, the witness looks um, at, on the stand and how confident they are and looking to the factors that um, actually have bearing on reliability, including not just the surrounding circumstances of how the identification unfolded, but also the circumstantial evidence that supports the accuracy of their identification. Ms. Barch, isn't it equally speculative 
to, to say that the jury must have um, accepted what closing uh, the what counsel said in in closing arguments because it wasn't contradicted by the trial judge aren't we speculating about what the jury would or would not have thought because the jury is supposed to take the law from the trial judge's instructions that's what we tell them and that's what they should be doing so I'm just worried that you know what you're saying is your answer is that it was speculative, but isn't it speculative to, to say that, well, the, you know, the absence of a warning wasn't very significant because defense counsel had raised it in closing submissions? Thank you, Justice Kirkatanis. Um, it's not speculative. Our position is not speculative, I would submit, because the trial judge specifically told the jury to consider the um, counsel's uh, review of the evidence. And so the jury would have understood clearly that um, the evidence included the witnesses on the stand pointing out the accused as the perpetrator. Including the statements of law in the closing submissions. I guess that's what I was trying to get at. We tell right. the jury there's a difference between evidence and, there, uh, and the statements of law which are supposed to come from the trial judge. But when it comes to in-court identification, it's, it, it overlaps to some extent. The, the judge has to um, has a responsibility to alert the jury to the fact that eyewitness identification evidence cannot be evaluated in, um, in the way it might first seem to a layperson, and that in the experience of the law, um, this in-court identification evidence can be highly unreliable unless you unless there is other um, circumstances or evidence that supports its reliability and its accuracy and so um, ultimately it's for the the jury to make findings of fact which includes uh, the question of weight um, the judge told the jury that they're free to disregard his opinion on um, the evidence that they are the master of the facts um, and so in our submission, it's the, the test this court and appellate courts have to provide under daily. The cardinal rule is what is the general sense the jury charge would have conveyed. And we would submit that there was no um, non-direction or uh, that amounted to any misdirection in this case that the jury would have understood. They had to closely evaluate the eyewitness identification evidence in the mix of the totality of the identification evidence, direct and circumstantial and decide whether the Crown proved the essential element of identity beyond a reasonable doubt. And we would submit that the majority of the Court of Appeal was correct to dismiss the appeal and that this court should do so as well. Ms. Barch, under the heading in your factum, the dissenting judge's legal errors, you, you list <clears throat> various sins that the dissenting, dissenting judge um, committed and you focused in particular, I know, on, on, on how you say he, he failed to account for the circumstantial evidence of identification. Um, but you also say, paragraph 58, it was also an error to assess the strength of the Crown's case as it related to other essential elements of the offense apart from identification, and to use that assessment as a reason the trial judge should have said something more. Can you point to me where in the dissenting judge's reasons he does that? Um, well, for example, he, one, um, one thing he canvasses is the behavior of the eyewitnesses during that day in, in committing various thefts, for example. That had nothing to do with the reliability of their identification. Well, what are, but, 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 but you, you, you actually say, as it related to other essential elements of the offense, where, where does he do that? Because I, I looked and I couldn't find it. Oh, well, I guess in that sense, like, the credibility factors that aren't relevant to the accuracy of the identification but would be relevant to the Crown's proof of the other essential elements such as did this man who um, appeared at the campsite attack the victim um, uh, by you know throwing that first punch which provided circumstantial evidence that he administered a beating that resulted in death. Thank you. All right. Reply, if any. Thank you. 
I would ask Council to remain at our disposal. We will recess. I'd like to thank Council for their submissions. Uh, the court has reached a decision in this case. We agree with Justice Lurer in dissent that a specific Hibbert-type instruction was required in the circumstances of this case. The appeal is allowed substantially for the reasons of Justice Lurer. The conviction is set aside and a new trial ordered. Thank you. Court is adjourned um, till tomorrow morning.